are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Heidi Elsahar, a research scientist at Naver Labs Europe. His research focuses on neural language generation under constrained and controlled conditions. Heidi's PhD was on interactions between natural language and structured knowledge bases for data to text generation and relation extraction, which he completed in 2019 at the University of Lyon. We talk about his PhD work on data-to-text generation and how it led to interests in multilingual and low-resource NLP, as well as controlled generation. We dive deeper into controlling language models, talking about whether prompting is all you need, and his very interesting work on distributional control and energy-based models. Be sure to check out the papers in the show notes and stay around for some great advice on taking advice. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mention in the show notes. Here's Heidi Elsahar with Natural Language Generation from Structured Knowledge Bases on the Thesis Review. Before we start talking about your PhD work and how it connects with, you know, what you work on today, um, maybe we'll just start at the beginning. So even before your PhD, what was your background and what led up to you wanting to do a PhD? All right. So thanks, Sean, for the invitation. I'm quite happy to be here. And um, yeah, so I have, I have a bit of, I would call it non-stereotypically researcher background. I, I grew up in Cairo and um, my family was not a family who was like academics. I didn't even know if I'm, well, what I've been doing as a research until very, um, until I started finding that there is a path for research that's established, that's called academia. and But I've been always this kind of person who would like to dedicate a few days to know about something in depth rather than uh, hovering around the downstream media and getting like the distilled information. Um, during my bachelor, uh, I met with a couple of colleagues and we had this question-answering system over knowledge graphs as a bachelor project. And all over the, I think that sparked my interest uh, in NLP. And I think question answering was a bit, knowledge graphs also is a bit, this was like 2010 or something. And this was, um, so almost 12 years ago, time flies. And we were asking ourselves back at the time, is that research? What is research? And if we could get money by doing that full-time jobs, we, we didn't have like, especially in Cairo at the moment or in Egypt in general, lots of brain leak. Like many people who travel for PhDs, they don't come back. So it's very hard to find mentors to to support you and tell you, yeah, that you should apply for scholarships, get a PhD and you could become a professor in the uni or something. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was lucky at the time to be accepted in uh, Microsoft Research Labs for an internship. So here I started like seeing, okay, what's research, what's research publications. My mentor at the time was called Mona Habib and she actually, um, we worked together on a recommendation system for, um, for a tool actually that I still uh, use and work on. It's called the content translation tool in Wikipedia. And it helps editors to, to translate documents and start an article on Wikipedia based on another version of a different language in Wikipedia. And uh, we wanted to build a small SVM that says, would that article for that user be relevant or not? So you could build like some sort of uh, this SVM ranker for recommendations. Um, 
I think that that was the main thing that made me start loving NLP and uh, getting close to knowledge graphs in a way. So I knew at this time that, well, it's just a matter of time. I want to get established in that whatever type of work. And slowly, slowly, you start learning lots of things. Um, maybe not the not an not an order of of what people typically are doing, but um, but that's maybe is a powerful thing, not as a disadvantage. Sometimes you get a different view to things than people who like got into academia because while they're in the bachelor they got masters and then PhD in the same place and the professors reached out for doing PhD courses and yeah. So this is maybe that what made me decide to go into research with. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that's really interesting. So like you had mentioned that at the time you kind of didn't have a clear picture that this like research world was out there or how to exactly get to a certain point. Do you think that things have kind of improved over time or would you say that this is still something that a lot of people are facing? Right. This is a very good question. Um, I think two things happened. Um, the first thing is internet became older. So the amount of information on the internet became possible to, to reach. So lots of people now know about applying for scholarships here and there. Also, that motivated lots of uh, professors to, to do research programs and stuff in Egypt. Lots of research startups started as well. So lots of machine learning. And they started like this, this field of um, um, using machine learning for many problems, starting from medical domain to financial domain, started showing uh, a lot recently in Egypt. So people started learning from... I would say, um, other markets and applying these into Egypt. Lots of research uh, universities, like research-focused universities, start opening recently. Um, so I think we still, like Egypt still has this brain leak um, issue, I would say, but, um, well, Egypt also is 100 million, so there is enough people who, who would find opportunities inside, but also enough people who decide to continue their career somewhere else. So I think it's slightly getting better, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I see. Um, also, another thing that has started recently is also these research communities where the entry bar is, is quite lower than getting admitted to a university, for example. And these mm -hmm. communities, you could even from, uh, like I know lots of people from Masakani, for example, they never left their home city, but they are able to collaborate with, with researchers uh, around the world and... Thanks to the pandemic a little bit, also this gave people the perspective that they could work remotely and collaborate on things. So those research communities definitely, like Masakani, like Ruther AI and, and Big Science, they allowed opportunities for many people who um, maybe didn't have the, the community to established already to find out that people with similar interests and showing them like opportunities to to work on research and know what is research. Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah, increasing the number of opportunities for this, there's kind of like this middle area between like being a complete beginner and then like being in a PhD program. And it's like, what do you do in the middle? And so yeah. like one thing could be like joining one of these research communities. Yeah, hundred percent. I would, I wish like at the time I was, I know about these communities, for example, like when I was looking for PhD opportunities or master thesis, I wished like there was something like Masakani where I could work with researchers from companies or, or research labs and show that, okay, I have the set of skills. What do I do? And lots of also career, um, well, career advice you, you get from these communities, either directly or not directly, which helps you a lot or saving years like of, yeah, of trials yeah. and errors. So when you started your PhD, it sounds like you had some interest in these uh, knowledge bases and then your work during the PhD was kind of on this area. So um, could you just, yeah, let's like keep, keep going uh, chronologically, I guess. So like as you're starting, did you know mm. that you wanted to focus on this during the PhD and what were some of the um, ideas that you started to explore? Right. Um, 
I would say, so to, to be completely honest with you, um, I had these two fighting uh, urges inside me. Um, when you grow up in, in that society, for example, or, or in that community, you are so appreciative of opportunities in a way that you kind of have this fighting urge of accepting an opportunity because it exists, regardless of what are your interests of the topic. So now, one, I would say myself is a bit privileged to to get opportunities to work on many research topics, and then I can become selective of what I want to do. Um, back at the time, I found that, okay, we built some experience in knowledge bases in general, and what what inside, like, and in NLP, and what is what are the opportunities there to that allow me to work in a research program or something like this. So back at the time, there was the University of Leipzig, and they had this Google Summer of Code project. Uh, around the time that Freebase was letting go, uh, was let go by Google, like Google, I think, stopped or dumped Freebase. There was a big knowledge base at the time. And Wikidata is another knowledge base that was kickstarting. And there was a Google Summer of Code by another project it's called DPpedia that wanted to well, do some data cleaning and automatic injection of the free. So I started working there for a year with them to change their infrastructure to inject data from Wikidata and try to remove duplicates. Um, and that opened, uh, so the same group later got into um, uh, a European project that is based on knowledge bases and NLP. It was a question answering project, which was quite relevant to my research background. And question answering systems are a bit open in a way. You always know with these European projects, like they kind of put a theme, but you could decide what you want to do here and there. And as PhD students don't know actually what their topic until the very last end, always. I This naturally evolved into I would love to work with generation rather than showing the answer to explain the answer and, and show some... Uh, parts of it. This was kind of solved by the time a bit over knowledge bases or like one single hop question answering was a bit easy and you show the label. But then we started asking questions. What if the the description of Wikipedia is not there? Uh, what could we show to the answer? Could we translate some trippers into, um, into the user in two, three sentences? And somehow this became the, the topic of my PhD. And naturally also because you talk about stuff that's underrepresented in Wikipedia, then you naturally evolve into low-resourced setups, which I think also from a scientific point of view is quite interesting rather mm -hmm. than doing stuff with big data, available training data to do it on limited setups. Yeah, I see. And and so uh, in this case, you have this structured data from Wikipedia, and then one of the tasks, for instance, is creating some summary. Yeah. So uh, the easiest way is to, to have a sec-to-sec -sec model and uh, the input is like the triples from that you could extract from a table or the triples that you could extract from a knowledge base and you could uh, just train the model to, to do those. Then you have the obvious ways uh, of that your input data is biased because, for example, if you look at uh, some countries, they have so much more knowledge uh, related to them than others mm -hmm. so you need to look into ways back then the the sector sec models were not so good in in doing like uh, named entities that are rare how to represent them in the vocabulary this was like before bpe and models now are magical like you put a new token in the input and then they're able to copy it themselves back back then i mean 2015 or 14 they had this copy mechanisms which is based on the attention. I think uh, Show did some work also on um, these like detokenization and then like you detokenize the vocabulary into some tokens, like token one, token two, token three. So instead of saying uh, Morocco, Egypt, and, and Algeria, for example, you have three tokens and then you do this as post-processing step. So instead of representing rare entities as unknowns, you represent them as special tokens. Um, things evolved, I think, after some while, um, from 2018 onwards, those copy mechanisms are not so 
Like I mean, transformer can do this by its own, so there's no need for for that anymore. Mm. Um, yeah, one of the papers the the title was generating Wikipedia summaries for underserved language from Wikidata. You've mentioned these kind of lower resource languages. Did this either loosely or directly carry forward from your PhD? And like maybe now this is still something that you're uh, interested in. Uh, yes. So I think. For two reasons, I think I feel like this is the long tail of problems that people oversee all the time, and there's lots of opportunities there, which I think unconsciously drive like I have a bias towards these types of problems, like unsupervised low resource setups. I think they're more challenging, but also lots of opportunities because less hands on these, um, less people competing and less hands working on those problems. Um, now multilinguality is a thing that that's kind of becoming crowded, but back at the time it was not. And as a PhD student, also it was easier to publish in those areas. Um, and then naturally that evolved, for example, into uh, involvement in the Masakani community. Uh, we start tackling problems like machine translation for low resource languages. Um, not also low resource languages, but low resource setups. Like there are languages that are um, that are spoken by millions of people, but then they have no support at all online. Um, mm. They don't even have constructed dictionaries and, and stuff like this, unfortunately. Um, so I think that biased me. I mean, that introduced me to these type of of problems and made me a bit like uh, well, advocating so much these setups. Um, another, another potential that I really saw there, like, I wish like in the next five years or six years, those um, problems become a replacement of the few shot, like they become the, the guiding star of the few shot research and extremely few shot research. So I would wish that well, the way people tackling those problems at the moment is a compromise of the English setup, like, oh, let's train on English and then transfer learning or, or do something. But I wish at some point we stop doing this or alternatively or simultaneously we find that, okay, let's drive research of how to be extremely data efficient, how to uh, generalize as much as possible, how to um, not like compromise English, but totally tackle these problems from a different perspective. And then English at some point trying to read those, like people work on, on large setups or large training data setups, they would say, okay, those people discovered a way to be extremely data efficient because of their necessities. Let's apply it also in the rich data setups and see what happens here. So mm -hmm. I think this has been my attitude recently in research. Yeah, I see. You'd mentioned that um, some of the problems that you looked into in your PhD in this area, you could now like do with a transformer. In terms of the research challenges in this low resource multilingual setting, what would be like an example to give someone maybe the flavor of like the type of research problem uh, you would look into? Um, maybe this is a good point to look into, for example, controllability. Mm -hmm. um, I think controllability could be a very good uh, controllable language generation, for example. I mean, could be a very good example of how to tackle these low resource setups. So back at the time, we had um, around the area where trans where people were looking merely on applying large either crowdsourced datasets or or automatically generated datasets into deep learning architectures and getting a, a better score. And uh, one of the setups that we saw and I experienced that firsthand when during my internship in Bloomberg is that what if you have a certain style that is just not represented in your training data. And they had um, a very nice, uh, actually, problem, which was they have uh, some certain style written by the journalists that they wanted to mimic. And um, they didn't have, they know rules for it, but they didn't have any of the publicly available data set big enough to do that. So you could see that in two ways, as a low resource setup, where you say, I could annotate 200 or 300 summarization uh, entries in a data set where I uh, follow that style. And then you have an extreme low resource setup, but you could tackle it from a different perspective and say, this is a controllability problem. Mm 
where I would like to have a summarizer, but follows my rules. And I think that motivated all the controllability work that we have been doing. You see a connection here. It's a bit far-fetched, but I think that what happened in my in my brain. Like instead of saying um, uh, code, code switching as, as a problem uh, that ha- doesn't have a dead set to cover or uh, style or, um, or that set that's toxicity-free or that set that's um, de-biased uh, or something like that to say, okay, we have only one clean small data set, but we don't know. You could think of it as a controllability problem. We have very large general purpose models and we would like them to match some certain aspects of that data set. And this is a different perspective that makes the low resource setups not low resourced anymore. It's just you almost have something that generates the language, but you want to just control it in a way. And thinking of it this way makes you um, skip the problem of saying, oh, I don't need actually to have a one million example to to learn this new style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. So then like if you view it as control, I mean, maybe this is just like words, but... <laughs> Is there still an aspect of also learning something new, like in this new language? When I think of control, maybe it's like shifting some distribution to uh, to like identify an area that you already know how to do, um, versus like adding something new into your model. Does that make sense? Or uh, this does make sense. I think there is a spectrum here with respect to problems. So. Mm-hmm. If your model can puts all the probability mass of of its output space into toxic sentences, there's nothing you could do, right? Even if you do like rejection sampling or filtration, mm-hmm. uh, you would end up with nothing, right? Very low probability sentences. But um, fortunately, this is not the case. Like even GPT three knows, trained majorly on English, knows about other languages because of leakage in the data and 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 stuff like that or so mm-hmm. most more and more we're going on the general purpose models you could see that um you could see that well now we are getting to the moment where the model has a say on every possible distribution so you you get sentences of all sort of styles not all but many useful styles um you get the model to have a probability distribution that's not naive and not very bad on it, which you could use it for generation. But they are completely unexploited if you started to um, fine-tune the model or, or train the model from scratch on a smaller data set. And I think what helped a lot is is achieving this like kind of general purpose models. Um, I But to be completely fair, if you go for an extremely... Uh, underrepresented language like, for example, Igbo in the big corpus like CCNet or something. And then use CCNet to train a large language model like GPT-3 or something. Um, I would say it's rare to frame this problem as a control, but uh, I still have um, some thoughts on this. Maybe you could touch on the on the in the future part, like you still could learn from incremental learning of these models, for example. So using a small corpora, you could incrementally tune GPT-3 to have a say on those types of, of styles or, or languages. And then you could you could find flows in it, and then you could control these flows using some control techniques for, for generation. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I, I really like this this view that it seems like the models are getting more and more, like they're capturing more and more. And so they have this like crazy diverse distribution over everything. I mean, obviously not everything, but increasingly more and more. And so then the question becomes like, how do you like cut this down to do what you want? And maybe they're even getting so good that they can do some like novel composition as part of just this control process. Yeah. A novel composition that it would be extremely hard to train people to annotate data for, but it would be extremely easy to control, for example. Yeah, yeah. One natural question that comes to mind 
with using these large language models is like, can we do everything through the input? There's a lot of interest in like finding the right prompt for a certain problem. There's actually a funny tweet that I saw that someone was doing something with math with, I don't know, GPT-3 mm-hmm. or something. And they said like, well, if you put, I am a math tutor at the beginning of your prompt, then it like does better. And <laughs> so, <laughs> so that kind of worries me. But on the other hand, like it does suggest that, you know, can we do all of these control things by like coming up with the right prompt? Um, like what's your, what's your kind of view on, on uh, these types of things? This is, yeah, this is quite funny. I mean, I think the question could translate into, uh, could you win a war by blindfolding all the soldiers? I think you can, right? If you give them very big guns and they shoot in in all directions and then simulate that for one million times or billion times and then selection bias, the things, the words that work, and then the answer would be, yes, you can. Uh, I think that what has been happening so far with the prompting, I think it's a powerful idea, though. Like, it allows uh, control over the open-endedness of a language model. Nobody, I think, controllability existed, but um, because this is kind of a niche inside NLG in general, um, it was not seen, like, that we could make a general... Like, prompting makes this idea of open-endedness of a language model very powerful in a way that, well, it could generate language. It not only can autocomplete its sentences, which this we had until GPT-3. Language models, large language models, autocomplete your sentence. You could use them as ranking, filtration, or autocompleting keyboards. And that's pretty much it. And the prompting made that extremely powerful idea. No, they can do math. They can do question answering. You could frame anything as text-to-text problem and then you solve that. Um, the, also, the architectures became so much simplified. You could use a decoder-only model, and that's pretty much everything you want. Um, you don't need to sec to sec. You don't need uh, so even before GPT three, there was T five, I think, and T five made everything like as text to text. But you still have to have an input. But sometimes you don't have an input, and you would like to condition the model on nothing. So that's why I love I love the idea of prompting. But however, as I said, it's just shooting in the dark and it's so prone to like it allows for a big margin of selection bias, like people reporting what works and dismissing everything that doesn't work and be, if you have a self inclination to believe that the, your model or a model once is working, that could influence bias in selections. Um so also if it works and you add that I am a math tutor, what does that mean? And are you optimizing for the, are you, well, if you toy with the model for 10 hours and then you get a prompt that works, is that zero shot? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also this thing that because, because historic, like not historic, but, but, but the way these models are done, they're trained in the discrete space, so you cannot inject everything, every information you want to inject. You needed to inject it as a prompt. And if you want to inject the whole internet data set as a prompt, then mm-hmm. then that's a problem because you suffer from attention. And so right, yeah. but I think I think this will we will move over this soon. So I'm happy, for example, that people are challenging this concept by doing this continuous prompting, which I find is a powerful idea. Um, maybe we could model the space of the prompts. So instead of just making it open-ended shooting in the dark, maybe we could model the distribution of the prompts. So you have a conditional distribution of the prompts, and if you randomly sample from this prompt, then you could solve summarization. And then we have another distribution of prompts. And maybe in that case, we fall into ideas like variational prompting. And uh, you have a, a space of, of prompts where you randomly sample four for each problem. And then that that could be powerful ideas. I think at some point, people will, will get rid of toying from all these language like prompting and adding the context. Mm-hmm. And they would go into more like, OK, let's really know what's happening here. and. If we can model the input and 
right, and yeah. see what was happening. Yeah, I think this is also fooled by the business applications of 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 these. So the I would say the practitioner, um, the practitioner field or space of people who uh, apply NLP are so much larger than the research community driving large language models. Mm-hmm. So I think, but and they're creating lots of big buzz, and there are people who are definitely benefiting from uh, selling their language models as as um, as a service. So this affects the research community a little bit into deciding what they want to work with, and the practitioner space are so happy with applying like few shot like prompting and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So. I think that's driving us as a researcher also to look into prompting, but maybe this is something after the market stagnates in a while, we will overcome and start looking for better ways of doing this. Yeah, I see. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So then like on the topic of doing this controlled generation in an alternative, in a, in a different way, where you're kind of specifying a clear um, objective and then uh, optimizing something. Uh, maybe we could talk about this really interesting work that you had on um, distributional controlled text generation, and it's kind of led to other work as well. Um, could you just talk through like the the backstory of working on this paper? And I'll of course link to it in the in the show notes. Awesome, yeah. So in. I think this was definitely before the pandemic. I forgot exactly when. I think 2018 or 2019, um, with a colleague of mine uh, who was in Navy, it's called Mark Dimetman. Um, they have been working, or he also has been fascinated by the problem of moment matching and um, they apply to language models. So language models in general where um, it's a probability distribution over some some sequence space and you could see it as as this and um, the idea of moment matching of saying oh I would like that um, my distribution now if I sample randomly from it it has certain expectations towards certain features and he was using this at the time as a prior for facilitating training and what what, what do I mean by this so for example if um, if you have a data set that like a code data set and you want to train your language model to 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 generate code um you have some certain features that you could cal- pre-calculate their expectations so for example uh, compilability pep constraints uh, like a length average length of a sentence of a, a line and stuff like this and then apply these so you you calculate them from your training data get these priors and tell your language model to approximate when it's training to approximate, uh, well, on average, having these as expectations. Um, so that's process called moment matching. And um, at the time I was discussing with him um, that, oh, this is, I had this backstory of like, okay, uh, I would love to do something around controllability of language models. And this could be a very powerful idea for control. Like if we have a language model, a distribution that I would like to do moment matching, but instead of calculating my moments or moments are, are fancy words for expectations, like averages of, of some features, if you sample it from this distribution, um, if I could make them, uh, I could make my language model match on expectation wise, like whenever you sample from it, certain moments, um, that could allow for controllability. And, and instead of pre-calculating those uh, moments from a data set, I could actually put them by hand. So I would say, um, I would like this model to allow zero um, toxicity. So my the moment of toxicity defined by a classifier, for example, would be zero in that case. Um, but at the same time, I would like this model to have um, certain uh, distribution of uh, gender, but also certain distribution of professions or styles. And you define these, all of these as, as features, and then you predefine their expectations. And you say, hey, my expectation is uh, one, two, three, four. This is 20%, 30%, 40%, and so forth. And once you have that, you will have a new distribution that you would like to make um, to match it with your language model. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, and that's that more or less sparked the idea. How did we go forward with that? Um, we had uh, an intern uh, that's called Muhammad Khalifa. He's now in Michigan uh, University, uh, University of Michigan, and um, he worked on that. And we had our first iClear publication that actually worked on language models, decoder only, so unconditional in that case. Uh, problems and we used to match the simple stuff like toxicity classifiers, topics, keyword matching, and what was really nice is that because you don't, we didn't follow so much the the maximization perspective of like let's remove toxicity, so we define a reward that's zero, but we do some sort of moment matching. You could do distributional con- constraint, and that's something so far that people have been dismissing so much. But sometimes your control is not to completely satisfy something or completely remove something. But what about if you want to balance two aspects or three aspects or four aspects? Like, I don't want my mother to speak only about sports, but I would like it to speak equally sports, politics, um, and art and science, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, that complete, it was hard to kick off because you need to motivate completely new line of theory in that case. Um, Mm -hmm. Distractions by other people who simplify the problem of distributional control and convince the reviewers. But this was uh, quite a journey, I think. And then we had um, follow-up work to extend that to the conditional case and to apply it for, uh, so conditional language generation, meaning machine translation, summarization and stuff. But also we applied it for other domains like um, code generation, for example. And a recent work by colleagues and, and, and so Herman and uh, Mark Dimethan, um are and Brian Eikema from uh, University of Amsterdam, they've worked on sampling techniques. So instead of fine-tuning uh, a model to match this distribution, how could we find uh, a sampler that could directly sam- sample from this distribution with some efficiency uh, trade-offs, for example? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think we could go in details after uh, after this. Yeah, about technicalities of this work. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, just on the idea of those distributional constraints. So you said that it was kind of a tough sell, but it seems like a really useful, like generic idea. Like since releasing the paper, have uh, kind of like other people picked it up, or uh, do you think there's a lot more still to be? explored with these types of constraints i would say uh so we we have gained some attention by this work i would say internally definitely externally also um but i would say this is always the trade-off of doing something that could be easily understood by the reviewers or um, revisiting some theory and doing something that's a bit grounded up and trying to like put it until the end so unlike prompting for example if you read uh, if you read 10 other papers about prompting, you need to read less to review a paper for prompting. But if you get something that's completely, um, not completely, but not following the same um, line of work, for example, it's hard to sell because people assume so much. So, for example, this distributional aspect has been something that people dismiss completely. Like they don't understand the benefit of a distributional aspect and why something like a reinforcement learning will not um, be able to control distributional constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, so this has been tough to sell externally, but also things take so much time slower. Like you, we, in order to maximize a certain reward, you have like, maybe, I don't know, 100 plus algorithm in reinforcement learning to maximize reward. But um, we don't do reward maximization. In that case, we do some sort of distributional matching through something that looks like, through an algorithm that's called distributional policy gradient. So it looks very similar to policy gradients and hence comes the name. So reviewers, again, confuse it with policy gradients, right? And then say, oh, it's not novel or... Mm -hmm. um, or in the end, uh, because you're inventing something, uh, if you have a paper like variational, inf- if you use variational inference, for example, it's very, very, very well established by now that you don't need to double check theory. If you do something incrementally, you don't double check everything in the back. 
So we have mm-hmm. we have this paper that we were working on about the connections between distributional policy gradients, uh, which is something that says if you have a distribution, how can I fine tune um, a probabilistic model to match this distribution in in very simple terms by sampling from uh, by sampling from a proposal distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's a very simple idea. But then you have reinforcement learning, which says, how could I maximize a reward by sampling from my policy or a proposal distribution? So this Mm -hmm. is intrinsically two different things. Mm -hmm. But you could easily confuse them because the algorithm looks slightly the same. You sample from something, you update a weight, and you calculate gradients, and then you update your gradients. So... Lack of novelty could be something, or somebody who um, goes post hoc and says, oh, but this is a simple idea. Well, it is simple, but it takes under the hood like so much work of assessing actually that you're not confusing something. You you need all the proofs. So this paper we worked on is about this connection of distributional uh, reinforcement learning, which aims at distributional matching. Mm-hmm. And the policy gradients, and for example, stuff that lies in between, like um, PPO, uh, the work about, uh, sorry, not PPO, but this paper's from um, Natasha Jack and uh, the OpenAI guys about KL control uh, reinforcement learning. And we lay the landscape between pure reward maximization, distributional matching, or something in between, which is uh, like the KL control, where you like to maximize a reward, but you still take care about the distribution. Um, and then you motivate these to import some stuff from other to others. Uh, reviewers fail to see the novelty of that work because they mainly don't relate to the importance of distributional matching because they haven't read our previous work or even when you cite it, they are not interested to click on it or something. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to, if you do such work, you have to be kind of very persistent and I think a bit lucky to see that your work will pick up at some point. Yeah, I see. So then, yeah, like one thing, like you're saying, is this gives you some new framework. And yeah, if you read the paper, it's like very, um, uh, like everything's justified and there's really nice theory to go with it too. And then, so now that you have this distributional matching framework versus the reward maximization. Maybe this is what you did in that paper. Can you actually view things that people are doing with like the KL control as like a special case of the distribution matching? Like, is there some induced distribution that you end up matching? So I would say there are two two approaches here that has pe- people have been following so far. Um, I would like to maximize certain reward um, expectation of certain reward um, on the expense of anything else and then try to make your reward as representative as possible to everything you want to model and let's mm-hmm. refer to these as reward maximization so I would like to remove toxicity so uh, a language model that doesn't generate anything or generates only one sentence like uh, I love mm-hmm. this pot- podcast for example is an untoxic model. So that's a completely useless. And Reinforce, for example, would do that. Oh, you want to talk about politics? Then it will generate you one sentence that says president, 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 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you say, okay, uh, well, that's easy fix. Let's just add fluency to my reward. And then let's add diversity to my reward and so forth. Um, but then you would stumble upon that expectations are the average of the samples, but you don't have a global view of what you want to do. So, for example, uh, what if I want to generate different sentence all the time or um, a variance over, so not only expectations, but a variance over that. Um, I would like to maximize reward, but I also want to allow a margin of variance uh, mm-hmm. in that maximum reward. Um, this allow, this ha- There is no escape from looking into distributional matching if you want to do those things. Well, you could do empirical stuff, of course, but uh, this would not be found. Like, of course, you could stop, like decide to stop, uh, ref- like if you want to make, um, allow for 50% toxicity for some reason, or you want to 
like balance two topics you would just like train it and then sample every validation and once you get the checkpoint that matches roughly what you want to have as expectations you stop training but these are empirical things and um, i don't think there's lots of fun to do empirical things like this because they're not transferable like you cannot reproduce them in other setups um so the only way to go in our in my opinion in that case is to look at the distribution and then define a distribution uh, so that was the approach we went from the like i would say the different paradigm and we find that there are nice traits here so in a distribution you could so in our case unlike lots of work um, that people have been working on using ebms uh, energy-based models in that case what we call as an energy-based model is not a learnable model in that case, but it is, um, it's made by definition. And it distills into one scorer that if you normalize these scores, you would end up by the distribution you would like to have eventually. And this, is, this distribution is defined. So what does it mean? It is the distribution that as close as the language model you want to have, but abiding by all the mo moment constraints you want to um, satisfy. And here comes the two problems. The first one is you want to define a distribution and then you want to sample from that distribution. Mm -hmm. And uh, sampling would require, in our case, either using um, 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 fine-tuning technique or a sampling technique. So either fine-tune another language model to approximate that distribution or using something like Monte Carlo techniques to sample from uh, from that distribution. Mm -hmm. And and so then you've looked into both of these? I, I guess like in the original, you would actually do this fine-tuning procedure to match this distribution. And then you said that recently you've been looking into just directly sampling from it? So you could actually, if you apply MCMC, like uh, MCMC on any scorer. So what's that unnormalized distribution that satisfies your constraints is a scorer, basically. Like you give a sentence, it gives you a number like 10 or something, a positive number. So that's an EBM. And many people who work on EBMs will not call that an EBM, but because it doesn't have a neural model inside, but it doesn't have to learn an EBM. You could also define an EBM. Um, I asked Yann Lequin and he said that could be an EBM, so I think that's fine. <laughs> uh, or implicitly that was uh, from like understood from our discussion. So it's valid to call it an EBM. And um, any scorer, unnormalized scorer, you could use, like there are lots of sampling theory to sample from unnormalized scorers. So one way is to do is to allow for Markov chain Monte Carlo, for example, algorithms to explore the space, and then you could um, you could get a samples that in the limit, the more the the chain goes longer, in the limit you would sample from that distribution. Uh, you could also do in certain cases you could do rejection sampling under certain conditions um, by defining an an um, an acceptance ratio, and then you sample from the model and you say, should I accept or reject that sample? So, well, an easy way to do that, um, let's say I would like, I have a toxicity classifier, and I would like that um, to define a distribution that exactly looks like GPT-3, but then distribution exactly, but on the things that this toxicity classifier tells me it's toxic, I would like to have a zero probability. So, what do you do? You multiply the score of the classifier with the score you get from GPT-3. And that makes the GPT scores that you get the probabilities of sequence unnormalized because mm -hmm. you have some samples in the space that became zero probability now. So you should increase the probability of everything else. So now your combination of these two are becoming unnormalized. Um, an easy way to sample from that distribution, which would be uh, a very simple corner case of rejection sampling, where you sample stuff from GPT-3, and if your toxicity classifier says uh, it's toxic, then you reject it, you put it in the bin and sample again. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a circular by definition, but because it's a corner case, but that would be the optimal thing you would do. Many people mm -hmm. try to, to avoid toxicity by very 
sophisticated ways. But I think if your language model, if you have a, well, the difficulty of toxicity is to, to detect it, not to avoid it. And theoretically, the best thing you could do is to just filter them out. Like if your model is 0.0001 toxic, it's easier for you and very efficient to to just like sample from the UX interface. And then if it's if your classifier says it's toxic, then you remove it. I think the problem of toxicity has is very, very challenging, not on the efficiency aspect or the engineering aspect, but on the um, societal aspect. What defines toxicity, how to detect it, and how to um, detect it in a very efficient manner in the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Looking forward, is there kind of a, a really like motivating application that you would want to use this for? Um, there are two things that I am uh, very looking forward to to look for. Um, the first one is to um, dynamically define those constraints per user. I think this is something I would love so much to see in the future. Is um, now we have a fine tuning method that 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 satisfies your constraints, but you need to fine tune the model from scratch. Um, Kind of the most of the controlled energy papers we see are um, not zero shot control in a way that the user defines their um, control conditions on the fly, any of them, any number of them, but kind of or in an in a user uh, friendly way also. But defines is just one simple uh, set of experiments that are defined prehand. And one thing I would love to see in the future is dynamically interacting with the user and defining the constraints dynamically. So there are two questions here, how to define constraints in a user-friendly way. Like, uh, is that style of the user? Is that soft constraints? Is the hard constraints? Um, and then the second way is how to um, impose these on language models in a fast way. Because, so uh, an application of that would be like a writer workbench where you go and write stuff and then the you have a, well, a side panel where you could add stuff, add vocabulary, add semantic meanings, like you would like to talk about these topics, add knowledge. So in a way to import documents and other references so you don't want to contradict with them. And then you want to have autocomplete or a helper that continues in a way that doesn't contradict with the references or write a sentence that you would like to refer this that would be great for example like wikipedia if you're a wikipedia writer you tend to go and get the resources and then you would like to write a sentence that summarizes that resource but also abides by the context so far i think that would be a great application um the second one which i think um, more for out of research interest Note application interest is um, one of the things we found uh, is quite powerful in the um, techniques we are using is the um, fine-tuning models with minimal deviation. So the way we want to do here is to impose these constraints but not deviate in terms of like KL diversions or any distribution diversions from the original language model. And um, I think this is a powerful idea not only in controllability, but also in um, controllability is a vague word in that case, but I mean by controlling language generation, but also in um, in continual learning and extreme few short learning ways. So I think that I honestly haven't started yet working on, but I'm, I'm kind of reading and searching for ideas there, is that if we have GPT-3 and we would like to incrementally add one more language and we have this very small number of, sentences in that language, how to edit that model to inject this new training data without destroying its future capabilities. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think continually um, updating the information with new training data, but deviating so little from the original model would be a thing. So for example, GPT-3 recently have rolled this version of fine tuning uh, API. And I asked lots of questions. How is that doesn't cause catastrophic forgetting for the original model? 
And I believe, uh, unless they, they have a trade secret that they haven't shared, that it will cause a catastrophic forgetting. Some people say they, they train adapters. Well, adapters' parameters are part of the model, so they still cause catastrophic forgetting. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you remove them, but then you don't get the combination of the two. You either get the fine-tuned version or the original version, which doesn't solve the problem. Or people say, oh, you, tr- you train for very little number of epochs. And again, what does that mean theoretically? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish maybe in the next few years to have a paper that tells you, well, if you have 10 more examples, this is how you train your model, or this is the objective function you train your model to inject only these 10 examples. You don't have to upsample these 10 examples. You don't have to do this uh, juggling with the training data upsample and have access to original training data. I think theoretically, this is an easy problem. Just see your original distribution and then just say, okay, how to minimally deviate from this original distribution in terms of any edit distance and maximize the probability of the new samples. And I think that would solve the problem. Um, mm-hmm. I hope, but let's see. So yeah. this is the second direction that I'm very hopeful we could roll forward from from here. Yeah. Yeah, that is really fascinating that we have these large models and then we kind of want them to be able to acquire new skills but not forget everything that they've learned so far. And so it could be that uh, these types of uh, methods that we've been discussing where you kind of want to minimally deviate from your original model while acquiring something new uh, could really enable that. Yep. Okay, cool. Well, um, we could start moving to the uh, last two questions that I always ask on the thesis review. All right. So the first is um, about objective functions. If you could look back to during your PhD and think about like whether you could describe what you're doing uh, using some objective function, like it might be scientific exploration, it might be um, you know you had some job in mind and kind of working backwards from that. Uh, what was your objective function during the PhD, and then nowadays, do you think that your objective function uh, has changed? Right, that's a good question. Um, I always think about that question actually, if what, what I'm trying to optimize. Um, also, a disclaimer here, not because you you see somebody in the after five, six years or 10 years of finishing their PhD, optimizing another objective function. This means that this objective function is the best one or better one to do. I believe like uh, pre-training is important and then fine-tuning is important. But because fine-tuning gives you better results, this means that pre-training is not important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I... I had I had lots of things to catch up during my PhD because um, because we we had like a big mess happening like in the beginning of my PhD there was the sec to sec models became popular and then in the middle of my PhD the transformers became popular and then in the end of my PhD pre training became popular so everything I was like trying to brainstorm for <laughs> starts to become uh, obsolete in like six months or something. Um, but uh, I would say for most of the PhD students, um, there is a big push for publications. I mean, this is the elephant in the room that people don't speak about a lot. So one big objective function is, um, I want my profile to have like top tier conference papers. And, uh, I mean, everyone would say, oh, this is not the best thing to do and stuff, but nobody puts themselves in the shoes of a PhD student. I think some professors even push for papers, but even for the most relaxed professors with publications, their students want to um, want to have publications because they go to conferences and everyone talks about their work and they want to also talk about their work in top conferences. So publications was one big objective function. I had another one which I had to I had to catch up with lots of theory. Finally, at the time, I thought like, oh, there will be that moment where I learn about everything I missed before. But I just didn't learn that this is just not realistic. Like you will have to, 
this learning about things is a about theoretical um, background things um we take forever i mean it's a continual thing that you keep doing until the end of your career so i had this big google doc which has like books for everything and from linear algebra to statistical uh, things, Bayesian, which was the hardest to get through, to be honest. And uh, so maybe that's a call for Bayesian people. Please make your work a bit more accessible to the non-Bayesian people. Um, and um, yeah, so two things, I mean, doing publications mainly. And uh, the second thing was catching up with theory, like to lay foundation. Um, and engineering work, also catching up with lots of engineering, like training on GPUs, uh, learning all the tools. Like, just to give you this, like a, a flavor of what does that mean, in the beginning of my PhD, I used to take the derivatives by hand to train one layer or two layer neural networks. In the end of my PhD, there was PyTorch. So mm -hmm. I had to learn Lua and stuff like this in the beginning, which unfortunately, compared to people who did their PhDs five years before me, they kept to continue and capitalizing on what they learned for a bit. But I learned Lua and I learned like how to do derivatives and write a neural network in Lua and stuff. And then it became obsolete, like that moment I became fluent in it because then Theano came and then PyTorch came. So yeah. Nowadays, I'm, I'm looking for things a bit differently. Uh, I would say because of maybe establishing things a little bit, I would look for like long-term transformative ideas. So I'm a bit chill if like one year we don't have like big conference papers. There are always something to publish, but I would be chill, honestly, for that. Again, I don't think PhD students should be taking this as, oh, I should chill for my first year and not feel the stress of not publishing. It's a different scenario. Everyone was in the same process. I, I hope that the society as a whole change, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I don't think this is objective function is a bit applicable. Um, mm -hmm. I would love to, like mostly work I'm doing is like building connections and communities. I think these are very valuable in a way, like participating to communities, doing uh, building connections with, with people from these communities, either for social good or not for social good at all. Um, to outside of work things, I learned them the hard way is uh, sustaining my mental health and my uh, personal uh, routine. Like I try so much to put routine into things, take care of my mental health because uh, Again, I don't know any better way of doing it, but uh, at least it's an objective function that I'm trying to optimize at the moment. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that was that, that was a really great answer. Um, and so, the last question is sometimes the hardest, and it's about uh, advice. So, if you had to come up with one piece of advice to a new researcher, and I, I guess you've already given many pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, throughout this conversation, but just like one more to a new researcher and to make it easier, it could even be just like a useful heuristic that you found along the way, um, or it could be something grand and all encompassing if you want. Uh, but just one piece of advice to a new researcher. I think, yeah. So this one is a bit meta and I think there are lots of great advice out there. So new researchers just Assess who are you receiving advice from. I think this is very, very, very important because, um, okay, I mean, be completely frank. Many people give advice, tell you like, oh, here is how you select your PhD advisor. Not, not everybody has a privilege of selecting a PhD advisor. Some people get this only one opportunity and they stick to it. So lots of great advice there, definitely. Uh, assess them rather than just because this is an authority figure or somebody who is like advanced in their career than you are. You take them as correct in all contexts. There are, unfortunately, there are people who have different circumstances than others. So just look into the profile of the person, listen to many advice and assess who are the most relevant people to you and find role models and people who you could relate to to them. 
and uh, take their advice more relevant than others who might have different circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's really useful. And I think it's the first um, advice on how to take advice. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to do this interview. Um, I'm a big fan of your work. I think, you know, from the from the research to all these different like communities that we've talked about that you're helping to build, um, it's been really cool to watch and I'm looking forward to see where it goes in the future. And so, yeah, thanks for coming in the thesis review. Thank, thanks a lot, Sean. I'm also a big fan of your work. Thanks a lot. And um, thanks for the invitation again. Thank you.